0: Well, a big day in Brussels. Speaking of talking, lots of talking today. A triple summit, NATO leaders, G7 leaders, the EU. One topic on the agenda, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The result, more military equipment to Ukraine, more NATO troops along NATO's eastern flank, Europe's eastern flank, and more sanctions against Russia. In a nutshell, pledging to present a united front in the face of Russia's ongoing aggression in Ukraine. NATO also called on Russia to implement an immediate ceasefire. Here's President Biden. Putin was banking on NATO being split. My early conversation with him in December and early January was clear to me he didn't think we could sustain this cohesion. NATO has never, never been more united than it is today. Putin is getting exactly the opposite what he intended to have as a consequence of going into Ukraine. Prime Minister Trudeau said Canada will impose new economic sanctions against another 160 members of the Russian Federation Council. We continue to have those discussions at home. We have a budgetary process underway right now. Uh, We have a NATO meeting, a further NATO meeting in uh, Spain uh, in the coming months. Uh, Those are all things that are ongoing. Trudeau there talking about defense spending or calls from NATO to for Canada to increase its defense spending. So one month after the Russian invasion and a show of unity from Ukraine's allies, a show of strength, but where does that leave Ukraine and what does it tell Russia? Joining me now is Ellis Vlasi, political scientist at Simon Fraser University, who studies Russian influence operations in Europe. Welcome to the show. Thanks.
1: Uh, good to be with you, Ben.
0: Um Last time we spoke, we talked a bit about Russia's playbook to operate in the fog of war and to split and fragment alliances. Uh, A month later, that doesn't seem to have worked. So what what does Russia do now? And how much did today's meetings matter, do you think, to Moscow?
1: Well, what uh, Russia does now, it's probably uh, switch uh, the playbook. And the next playbook could be a lot worse for Ukraine. Uh, We have seen in the past that with certain regimes, autocratic regimes especially, when their short-term goals do not work, in this case the Russians banked on being able to capture Kiev uh, in a matter of days and in a matter of weeks. That has not worked out very well for Russia or for Putin. Uh, what I am worried about now, and I think what we have begun to see a bit, is that as Russians get desperate, they are going to turn their missiles, their bombs, their bullets to civilian areas and try to hit them harder and more oftenly. And they have done that. They have increased that intensity. In the first few days of the invasions, they were trying to somewhat uh, save the populace uh, and try to, uh, save some of the infrastructure. Now we see that they are bombarding cities. They are, uh, devastating cities like Mariupol and other places in, uh, Ukraine.
0: You've studied Russia very closely when it came to different, uh, to this playbook over the years, whether it be in Georgia in other places, uh, Transnistria in Moldova, you've studied this playbook. What went so desperately wrong, um, this time around?
1: I think uh, the Russians were very much misinformed with regards to their ability to subdue Ukraine in a matter of days. I believe that the Russians expected the Ukrainian government to fall or to be evacuated to exile in a matter of uh, days. Their problem, in addition to uh, not having that intelligence, was that they went for the symbolic instead of for the strategic. The symbolic was the Russian insistence on capturing Kiev and basically killing the entire government of Ukraine if they could get their hands on the members uh, of the government. So the Russians made that symbolic mistake instead of focusing on the strategic uh, points of Ukraine. And you see that in the south, which plays to the strategic uh, aspirations of Russia, they have been able to do a lot better in terms of capturing a lot of that territory around uh, eastern and southern parts of uh, Ukraine. Uh, Now, as the Russians have failed to subdue the Ukrainian people, the Ukrainian government, uh, there is a very high likelihood that uh, the Russians will do to Ukraine, at least those areas that they cannot subdue, to what they did to Grozny in Chechnya in the 1990s, or Aleppo in Syria a few years ago, or to what Serbia did to Bosnia in Sarajevo in the early 1990s.
0: Right. I mean, there's clearly pressure not to let that happen. Uh, I mean, it's happening already in Mariupol, clearly. But there is clearly pressure on NATO, on G7 leaders, to not watch that happen, to say, Kiev did you see anything today from those meetings that led you to believe that there is that there is any way to stop Russia from from indiscriminate killing of Ukrainian civilians?
1: I don't think uh, any outcomes of the summit point out to what NATO would do to prevent uh, Russia from basically obliterating uh, Ukraine again, uh, one good outcome of NATO summit was that not only did they display, a great degree of unity but they have shown over the last month that with regards to Russian invasion of Ukraine that the 30-member alliance can act quite expeditiously when it is in its uh, interest. We have seen that NATO is doing a superb job in increasing the level of deterrence in case Russians want to start another adventure in the Baltics, Poland or Romania, all NATO member countries. NATO has been very very stern in that they will not be engaged in the Russia-Ukraine war just because that would mean that NATO would go to war with uh, Russia, and it does not want to do that. One of the most interesting points that speaks to this lack of clarity, which is not necessarily very good, is on the issue of chemical weapons. There have been some reports that the Russia may resort to chemical weapons in Ukraine. NATO today did a very good job in basically saying that we are going to provide equipment to the Ukrainian forces in order to deal with chemical warfare. What NATO summit did not do is set out some either clear red lines as to what Russia can or cannot do with regards to chemical weapons or to basically signal to Russia and others that this is our response in case uh, you use chemical weapons. President Biden Biden did this on a kind of a bilateral basis in letting uh, Russia know that the United States will act but not as NATO, but only as the United States. However, considering red lines in the past with President Barack Obama in Syria, uh, one is to take uh, Biden's notice with a grain of salt.
0: Certainly, one remembers uh, President Obama's red line in Syria, the non-red line. So is there a danger here? We now know that apparently American generals and and Russian generals are not speaking to each other, to nuclear powers. What is your sense of the danger of escalation here? Or are we destined simply to see this, this war confined to within Ukraine's borders and trying to do our best to provide Ukraine with enough firepower to push back?
1: I think NATO uh, Alliance uh, has done a very good job in signaling to the Russians that we will not be involved in this war as an alliance, though we will continue to support Ukrainian government on a bilateral uh, basis. I believe that NATO has done a superb job in terms of uh, sending uh, forces to the Baltics, Poland and Romania, either uh, by enhancing the past, uh, what is called the enhanced forward uh, presence, or by creating these new four battle groups that uh, they've did over the last couple of uh, days. So I think Russia knows that NATO is not going to attack Russia. But by the same token, I believe that uh, Vladimir Putin is having a very difficult time subduing the Ukrainian folks. Starting a war with NATO would clearly uh, lead to Russia's defeat. And with all autocrats, once you, lo- once you lose a war, basically the heads roll, including that of the leader. We've seen it with Saddam Hussein. We've seen it with Libya as Muammar Gaddafi. We've seen it with Slobodan Milošević. Uh, I do not expect Vladimir Putin to be any different.
0: No, Vladimir Putin will know that history very well. Elis Vlasi, thank you so much for your time tonight.
1: My pleasure, Ben. Goodbye.